The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning at verse 11. We'll be reading through verse 20 this evening. I should perhaps say something at the beginning of this scripture reading because there's a common misunderstanding uh, that's gone on throughout much of the history of the Christian church. It actually comes from the name uh, of this book. It's called Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. Uh, that is not what our Jewish friends call it. It's perhaps a bit misleading. The book of Deuteronomy is given by that great man of God, Moses, uh, right before he's about to die. And the people of God are going to go into the promised land without him. If you stop and read the book of Deuteronomy for yourself, what you're going to discover is, is that the bulk of the book is made up of three sermons. And it doesn't mean law in the way that we often use it narrowly to mean commandments and statutes. Rather, it's conveying the idea of Torah in the broad sense. Torah is God's word. It includes gospel. It includes wisdom. In fact, um, the book of Deuteronomy is just filled with messages of the grace of God. But this evening, as we come toward the end of the book, to chapter 30, to the portion of God's word that we're reading this evening, we're going to hear that whether or not we trust this word and whether or not we put this word into practice has the most profound ramifications not only for our lives, but for our eternity. Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning at verse 11, the word of the Lord. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God and obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, 
and to Jacob to give to them. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is from Paul's second letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. We'll be reading through verse 17 this evening. The word of our God. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning at verse 11, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. The Lord wants you to know his will, and he wants you to trust it and to do it. Uh, This may sound like the most obvious point that I've ever tried to make in a sermon. The Lord wants you to know his will, and he wants you to both believe it and to do it. This truth is both foundational to the Christian life and regularly dismissed in the modern Western church. For one thing, many people have taken a genuine set of truths, but there are in fact some things in the Bible that are difficult to understand, and they've run wild with those truths and made it seem as though you could scarcely know the Bible at all unless you've studied it academically for many, many years. But that's not true. As we'll see this evening, Moses, and of course consistent with the rest of the Bible, tells us that the main messages of God's word are clear. They are available to us. They are accessible to us, both so that we would understand them and also so that we would do them. Second, the central importance of obedience in the Christian life has fallen on hard times in the modern West. Uh, I want to say that this is a problem in our own circles. This is not just a problem out there. Many people seem to be content with simply gaining intellectual attainment as though the purpose of studying is merely learning. But as Alistair Begg likes to remind us, the learning is for living. God intends us to respond to his word with loyalty and love, that we would walk in his ways and therefore live. In our own circles, there's also another problem, that a popular school of thought has emerged that either the whole or the main purpose of the law of God is to show us that we cannot keep it. I'm sure you've heard this in one form or another. Uh, The idea is, is God gives you commandments that you can't keep, and then as you struggle to keep those commandments as a way of demonstrating your righteousness, you despair of yourself, and that drives you to Jesus Christ. 
Well, it is true that God graciously um, helps us when we misuse his law in this way. We're going to realize that's actually a misuse of the law. God never gave us his law so that we would use it like a ladder to try to climb up into heaven based on our own obedience. Now, if we do seek to misuse the law in this way, the Lord is so gracious that the Holy Spirit frequently convicts us of our inability to establish our own righteousness by law-keeping in the power of our own flesh. And this conviction does drive us to Christ. Yet when we examine the totality of Scripture, what we will see overwhelmingly, this is by far and away the greatest use of the law in Scripture, is simply this. It is intended for those who have been redeemed by God as the way of telling us God's will for how we will live. It is part of our grateful response to God's redeeming work that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. By the way, you see this in the Old Testament too. Uh, This morning in morning worship, we confessed our faith using the Ten Commandments in responsive readings. And you'll notice that I always introduce the Ten Commandments, not with the first commandment, but with the fact that the Lord says... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. That is, God's act of deliverance comes first. The Ten Commandments are intended as the response of the people of God to God's prior work of grace. There is something which is also vital for us to keep in mind As we study tonight's passage from Deuteronomy, the Old Testament does not merely give us law in that narrow sense of the term. It gives us the totality of God's word with all its breadth. The Old Testament gives us instruction, it gives us wisdom, and it gives us gospel. In fact, the leading evangelical scholar on the book of Deuteronomy, and there's no doubt that this is true, is a man by the name of Daniel Block very fine Old Testament scholar. And Daniel Block's best-known work on the book of Deuteronomy is called The Gospel According to Jesus. Deuteronomy is good news. It tells us the way of life. It tells us who God is and what a good God and Father he is for us. As Moses himself says in tonight's passage, He has not simply set a list of rules before the people of God. He has set before us the way of life and the way of death. And he is graciously calling us to choose life. We will therefore seek to grasp and apply tonight's passage under five headings. First, the word of God is accessible. Second, The word of God is clear. Third, the Lord calls us to obedience. Fourth, trusting and obeying the Lord is a matter of life and death. And fifth, we are responsible for whether we trust the Lord unto life or disobey the Lord unto death. We begin with an apparently simple question. Where can we find enlightenment and life. 
Let me give you that again. The question is, where can we find enlightenment and life? Uh, when I was growing up, particularly in the 60s and the early 70s, there were a number of famous people, really celebrities, who went on very public searches for enlightenment. And they all did the same thing. They didn't go on a search for enlightenment in Newark. Um, they went to exotic places far away. Uh, Malcolm X quite famously took a pilgrimage, pilgrimage to Mecca and he converted from being a black Muslim to being a genuine Muslim. Uh, the Beatles went to India in order to learn how to do transcendental meditation. And of course, there were many people who went to China to study with monks in kind of obscure places that were away from the mainstream, all in the search of enlightenment. And in the ancient world, they understood this very same idea, admittedly fictional character Gilgamesh, but it's the Gilgamesh epic, which is just famous throughout Mesopotamia. Gilgamesh travels over many seas in search of immortality. In some ways, most of us seem to imagine that the quest for true enlightenment must involve a long and arduous journey to some place which is radically different from where we are right now. Or if we are to remain in place, it must involve a long denial of the basic pleasures of life. It must be hard, and it must be remote. Yet when it comes to the true enlightenment about how to live, and how we are to have eternal life, Moses tells us that it is neither too difficult for us, nor is it far off. Look again at verses 11 through 14 with me. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. So the first thing we need to see is that this word from God is accessible to us. Uh, this is true of the written word. It is also true of the incarnate word. We do not have to undertake some sort of mystical ascent to heaven in order to come into contact with God. Rather, as we confess in the Nicene Creed, it is for us and for our salvation that he came down from heaven. Beloved, we do not find Jesus. Jesus finds us. Nor is the Lord's instruction for his people something difficult to get our hands on. Now, it's true. If the only way that we could have God's word was that we would have to walk to California, we ought to put on our walking shoes and head out because God's word is that valuable to us. We would not have life without it. But God does not make it hard. Rather, he brings his word to us, to his people, so that we will know his will, so that we will trust his will, and so that we will put his will into practice in our lives. 
One Lutheran scholar points out, when the word of God is memorized, recited, and confessed, it is in your mouth. Let me say that again. When the word of God is memorized, recited, and confessed, or perhaps if you just read it out loud, it is in your mouth. That's the ordinary way of meditating upon the word of God. And when it is internalized in faith, believed and acted upon, it is in your heart. This means it's not enough, of course, to have a Bible on your nightstand or three or four extra copies downstairs in your study. Right? That's not enough. God is saying, though, that the word is accessible to you, and if you meditate upon it, that is, it's in your word, your mind, and your heart, you have access to the very will of God, and you can understand it. Now Moses is speaking of the gospel promises and covenant word which he has been preaching to the people of God in the previous 29 chapters of Deuteronomy. That Torah from the Lord is beautiful and it is filled with grace. Yet on this side of the cross and empty tomb we have even greater insight and see the wonder of God's grace with even greater clarity. Wait to listen to Romans chapter 10 with me. The Apostle Paul takes this very passage from Deuteronomy and he slightly rewrites it, that is, he inserts things about Jesus Christ so that we will understand the faith in an even more full way. The Apostle Paul writes, The righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Beloved, salvation wouldn't just be hard, it would be impossible if we had to search it out or if we had to deliver ourselves. But because salvation depends entirely upon Jesus, God has made it as simple as possible for us. All we need to do is to cry out to him in faith for everyone, not most people, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The question is not, can we do this? The question is, have we done this? It's not complicated, but it does demand our response. The word of God is accessible to all of us, and the word of God is also clear. Um, The critical doctrine of the fundamental clarity of Scripture really came to a head during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Many of you will recall that the 
Roman Catholic Church at the time was saying, you can't put the Bible into the hands of common lay people who aren't educated. They're going to make a mess of things. And the Reformers said God's word belongs to God's people. And they acknowledge freely that there are parts of the Bible that are really hard to understand. And by the way, the Reformers back then and the Reformed Church throughout history has never said you should just go off by yourself and read the Bible because it's really clear. God, after all, gives us to each other in the church. God gives us teachers and so on. There's an ordinary sense of means that we have to rightly understand his word. But the Bible in the main, in terms of the big messages of how you are going to be saved and what the Lord is calling you to do, is so clear that without any special education, simply being able to read or being able to listen, you can understand God's will for your life. That's a fundamental divide between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Well, as I say, it is true that there are aspects of understanding and applying God's word which are very difficult. And that's one of the reasons why the Lord gives us preachers and teachers. But the main message of the Bible is accessible and understandable to everyone who, trusting the Lord, applies him or herself to listening to what the Lord has to say. Now, you'll notice I made two caveats there. Trusting the Lord and works at it, meditates upon God's word day and night. I mean, having a Bible on your shelf isn't going to do it. And it turns out that if you refuse to trust the Lord, there'll be, as it were, a veil over your eyes so that God is keeping you from understanding. But if you're seeking the Lord, he gives you the Holy Spirit to open your eyes so that you'll see what is already there. A well-known Lutheran theologian, Francis Pieper, uh, puts the matter plainly when he writes, the perspicuity of Scripture, that is, the fundamental clarity of Scripture, consists in this, that it presents in language that can be understood by all whatever men must know to be saved. Well, not surprisingly, the Westminster Confession nuances that just a little bit to make sure you all know there are aspects of the Scripture that are hard to understand, but it basically says the same thing. Our confession puts it like this. All things in Scripture are not alike or plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Now, in this congregation, I mean, I'm looking out at people that are well-educated. I want to remind you that throughout church history, the vast majority of believers were simple people. Uh, they shepherded sheep. They did farming, but not with the high-tech equipment that we have today. And God said... They can listen and understand my word. Beloved, all of you can too. God, as it were, has put the cookies down on the bottom shelf. Parts of scripture are hard to understand because God is revealing himself and he is infinite. But God also truly, accurately, and rightly reveals the basic things that he wants you to know in language that every one of us can grasp. 
The word of God is accessible, and the word of God is clear. Well, I mentioned that there was a problem in the Middle Ages with the Roman Catholic Church, but it turns out that this very issue is probably a bigger problem among Protestants today than among Catholics. Um, And what actually has gone on in Protestantism is we've confused unbelief with the Bible being hard to understand. So if you go back 100 or so years ago in the various Presbyterian controversies, one of the issues that came up was simply this. We don't want to divide the Presbyterian church over matters of interpretation, right? You know, you have your interpretation, I have mine. We don't see everything exactly the same. Can't we just focus on a few central truths? One of the issues that was thrown out there, actually intentionally by those who did not trust God, was, you know, the virgin birth. I mean, we all know virgins don't really give birth, right? Well, you know, the people back in the first century knew that too. They understood it was a miracle, right? It didn't just happen. But they'll say, you know, it's not that big a deal. It's not that important. It's not central to the faith like, you know, Jesus loving you. Of course, if you follow out what they were doing, you find out that pretty quickly they got to um, whether or not Jesus died a substitutionary atonement for you or bodily rose from the dead. That was also a matter of interpretation. You know, the Bible's hard to understand, right? But that wasn't about the Bible being hard to understand. That was about unbelief. Uh, You can be eight years old and read the Gospel of Matthew in any decent English translation, and it's going to say, born of a virgin. It was going to be an explanation from God, you know, to Joseph, talking about the fact that that which has been conceived in Mary's womb is of the Holy Spirit. It's plainly there. But people compromised on it because they didn't think it was a big deal. Now, that's also a problem because if Jesus was not born supernaturally of a virgin, but he he was actually a lineal descent of Adam, right, born of the flesh, um, he would have been born in sin and incapable of saving anyone. So it's a problem they didn't understand that. But I want you to step back from that for a moment and see what people are saying. They're saying the Bible is so hard to understand we shouldn't fight over all these details. But beloved... The psalmist does not celebrate that the Bible, the word of God, is a really fascinating fog machine. The psalmist celebrates that God's word is a lamp onto our feet and a light onto our paths. And I want you to realize that's true all throughout scripture. You have to keep in mind what it says about God to say that his word is hard to grasp. It's either claiming that God is incapable of communicating clearly to us, or it's claiming that he didn't care to. One disparages God's ability, the other disparages God's love for the simplest of his children. But neither of them are true. In fact, Jesus at one point says to his father in prayer, I thank you, Father, that you have revealed these things to children, to babes, while hiding them from those who are wise in their own eyes. We ought not to confuse unbelief and pride with the idea that God's word is somehow difficult to grasp. In fact, throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus talking to people that, that are pressing all sorts of odd teachings. And Jesus says, like, oh, well, you know, the Bible's really hard to understand. Jesus says things like, well, have you never read? And then he quotes a portion of God's word, and often he quotes it 
without hardly any explanation or no explanation at all. He says, look, you just read God's word. I'm telling you, it's clear. You should get it, and I am holding you responsible for it. Or in fact, you should think about how Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, here's my words. I'm going to give you two types of men. One person looks at this and says, I'm not going to do that. That person's building his life like he's building a house on sand. And, And when the rain comes and the storms and the winds blow, that house is going to fall and great will be the ruin of that house. But another type of people, those who trust me, they're going to understand my word. They're going to put it into practice. They're going to build their lives on what I'm saying. And when the winds and the storms blow against their life, that house will stand. Beloved, the clarity of the word of God is not a minor matter. It says something about who God is. And let us be clear about the clarity of Scripture. Those who claim otherwise simply don't like what it says. And this is not something just from the first century. Just this month, the Southern Baptist Convention has met. Some very well-known celebrity pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention gave some, um, frankly, disturbing speeches that are recorded online. Uh, One of them is Rick Warren. Uh, You may know him of the fame of the 40 Days of Purpose uh, that he sold, I don't know, 40 million copies of. He got himself rich off that book um, for the purpose-driven life. Rick Warren, who against Southern Baptist principles, personally ordained three women pastors, uh, I think just this last year, stood up on the floor of their assembly and said, hey, you know what? These things are all details. We're going to disagree about them, right? It's not that big a deal. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Now, if you tell me, is women's ordination as significant as Christ rising from the dead? I mean, the obvious answer is, of course not. You, after all, can be saved and believe in ordaining women pastors. But the question is, has God spoken? You know, that's the question. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Satan saying, has God really said? Well, you don't have to solve this issue for yourself tonight while while I'm finishing the rest of the sermon, but let me tell you this. There has never been a church in all of history who has held both to the inerrancy of Scripture and to the women's ordination terms of the pastoral office in all of the history of the church and the reason for that is it's not unclear in order to hold to ordaining women to be pastors you actually have to ignore a lot of what the bible says and when you're confronted with that conflicting information you have to decide i'd rather do it my way than god's way and therefore we really shouldn't be surprised when churches that moved to ordaining women to be pastors 40 and 50 years ago, moved in the last decade to ordaining practicing homosexuals, because it's the same principle. In fact, you might as well say, if you get to ignore your portion of the word of God, I I should be able to allow to ignore my portion of God's word. But if we'd simply take God at his word, we would not have these problems. Taking God at his word is important, even if the issue does not seem in itself, to be central to the Christian life. Now, it's true that God's word is accessible 
and God's word is clear, yet that doesn't do us any good until we take the Lord at his word and therefore put his word into practice. Um, You know, it's said that the prospect of one's imminent death focuses one's mind tremendously. Moses, that great man of God, is about to die. He, He has faithfully led Israel for 40 years, And the people of God are about to go into the promised land without him. This is his last words to them. He is not going after some obscure topic. He's putting it right out there on the table for them. I am setting before you today life and death, good and evil. He's making it as clear as he possibly can as he gives Israel his final words of encouragement that they would choose life. This was not a time for subtlety. If Moses was misunderstood, he would not live to correct it. This was a time to lay it on the line and call the people of God to choose life. Look at verse 15 with me. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. A fairly large number of commentators, actually I I would say a surprisingly large number of commentators, talk about this choice in a stunningly superficial way. Uh, They talk about it in terms of, look, here's life, here's death. Or, here's heaven, here's hell. I mean, how hard a choice is that? I mean, unless someone's going to be mocking you, if you ask 100 people, do you want to go to heaven when you die, or you want to go to hell, 100 people are going to say heaven. I mean, what kind of choice is this? But they don't understand what's going on. Now, let me give you an illustration that might be helpful. Imagine you're talking to two young athletes this summer. They're going to be sophomores in high school next year, and they're both runners. They both actually run the 1,500 meters. And they're pretty good already as sophomores. And so you ask these two Uh, young athletes, do you want to be state champion in three years? Right before you graduate from high school, do you want to do that? It would not be weird for both of them to say yes. Well, that settles the matter, right? They're both going to be state champion because they both chose that course. Well, of course, that's not how it works. See, what you actually have to choose to choose to be the state champion It's not simply decide, boy, it would be great if I win. You have to choose discipline. You have to choose to watch what you eat in your diet. You have to choose the discipline of regularly going and running and doing the drills as you're supposed to do them. You have to make an effort not to engage in risky behavior where you might get hurt, get injured, and somehow ruin your chances. Right? That's how you choose to be an elite athlete. You choose it day in and day out by the choices you make. Now, it'd be quite possible that one of these two boys or one of these two young women, um, they might be lured away a bit by, you know, I don't know, eating Twinkies, whatever happens to be, staying up late in parties, getting tired, therefore skipping the, the exercise, the training the next day. And all along, they're saying, yeah, I'm going to be state champion when I'm a senior in high school. But they're choosing a different path. And these two different paths lead to two different destinations. I wonder how many of you remember Tom Seaver. 
Um, I remember Tom Seaver because my dad was a Mets fan, and he pitched about 13 or so, maybe 12 or 13 of his uh, years as a major league pitcher for the New York Mets. But Tom Seaver was a great baseball pitcher. But, you know, people actually made fun of him. He was so dedicated to his sport that he would not even pick up a suitcase with his right arm lest he might hurt it. And so people kidded him all the time about that. You know, I mean, come on. You know, just be like a normal person. But Tom Seaver, in a sport where it's not unusual for people just to have a couple of years of fame, he pitched for 20 years. He was picked as an uh, all-star 12 of those 20 years. Three times he won the Cy Young Award as the best pitcher in the league. And when the all-star balloting came in, he received the most votes, the highest percentage of votes, to be a first selection Hall of Famer up until that time in history. So people kidded Tom Seaver about his excessive devotion to everything it took to be excellent. But the results, well, they speak for themselves. Now, it's true, if you're talented enough and you're talking about high school, perhaps you can eat ring dings and stay out late at parties and skip practices when you don't feel like it. And you'll keep winning for a time, just on raw talent. But eventually you're going to run into someone else who also has kind of a similar level of talent who actually commits themselves. Uh, you know, this is the old saying in, in, uh, in music. You know, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Nobody gets there simply on raw talent. And that's true of the athletes as well. If you're talented enough, you might kid yourself for a while, but eventually you will be competing against other athletes of similar talent who choose to put in the work, and they are the ones who are ultimately going to take home the trophies from the state championship. Beloved, choosing life is a lot like that. See, here's the thing. You do not choose heaven or hell. You choose Jesus. You choose loyalty to the living God. You choose walking in his path. You choose attending to the means of grace. And because you choose Jesus, and then we realize that's because he first chose us, yes. But you do choose Jesus. Because you choose Jesus, a side effect of that is that you have eternal life and you go to heaven when you die. That's why people don't choose life. Because it's hard. This requires us to walk by faith, to learn by God's grace to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Now, here's the key thing for us to see this evening. You can't mix and match. Now, that's what people want to do all the time. They want to choose one course of behavior, and they want to choose the consequences of a different course of behavior. They want to eat the ring dings and still win the championship. And beloved, God says you can't do that with him. You can't choose to be a friend of the world and then expect the Lord to treat you as though you're the friend of Almighty God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. God calls us to choose loyalty to him in response to his life-giving love. Quite simply, choosing life means choosing to obey the voice of the Lord. Look at verses 16 through 18 with me. 
If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and to possess. Now, for some strange reason, obedience has fallen on really hard times. Not simply in the world, but in the church. I think what actually is going on in evangelicalism, including the Reformed world, is that people are confusing obedience with works righteousness. As though obeying the Lord, that is, walking in his word, following his paths, is an attempt to establish your own righteousness by your good works. At least I suspect that that's probably what's going on. But obedience is really simply a matter of genuinely trusting the Lord, and it is a matter of loyalty. I mean, think about your sin, actually. Whenever you sin, what you're saying is, you probably never say this rationally, but this is really how it's working. Whenever we sin, what we're saying is, doing it opposite of what God wants me to do is going to be better for me than doing it God's way. That happens every single time. You've heard me say, you know, one of Satan's great lies is you have to choose between holiness and happiness. Every time we sin, what we're doing is we're making a decision that says, I will be better off not doing it God's way. Wasn't that just fundamentally that we don't trust God? If you trust the goodness of God, you trust the wisdom of God, you know that can't be the right answer. Right? So obedience is not about trying to establish our righteousness. It's about trusting God. And it's about loyalty to him. See, now, Moses is not focusing on our individual sins. He knows, the Apostle Paul knows, and Almighty God knows that you are not going to be completely sanctified until the day that you die. It is not individual sins that are marking you out as being something other than one of his children. That's not the case. The question is, when push comes to shove, do you stand on the Lord's side? If so, that is obedience. Uh, just as an athlete could be truly disciplined, but not unfailingly disciplined in order to become an elite at his or her sport, so a disciple has to genuinely walk in the path of obedience, but not unfailingly be obedient in order to be a true Christian. You see that all throughout the Bible. There, there is a, a path of righteousness that we are walking in, And your individual sins do not mar that. But if you are not on that path, if in principle you refuse to follow God, then you are bearing evidence that you are not one of his children at all. Obedience is the pattern of behavior that validates that we are truly the children of God. By our fruits, we will be known. And as the Lord makes clear, the divergent paths of going our own way or seeking to walk in the way of the Lord, 
lead to very different destinations. The obedience of faith leads to the Lord's blessings. Moses says, if you obey, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Beloved, God's word is clear, and it is accessible to us. We are called to take him at his word, and therefore to put his word into practice. I said in the introduction that this is a matter of life and death, but honestly, that's almost to trivialize it. I mean, if I die tonight, it's the end of my earthly life, but it's scarcely a scratch in the life that I will have forever. This is more than a matter of life and death. This is a matter of your eternity. Your eternity is at stake, and also whether or not you will joyfully choose to glorify God. Indeed, we are fully responsible for whether or not we choose loyalty to the Lord above everything else that comes into our lives. Listen to verses 19 and 20 with me. Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Covenant ceremonies in the ancient world almost always had witnesses. There's a few exceptions to that, except you have to keep in mind that God himself is witness. You think of um, the Lord appearing to Abraham and going through the divided animals. But by ordinary design, covenant ceremonies had witnesses. By the way, they still do. Um, I don't know if there's any states that are an exception to this, but as far as I know, if you want to get married, you can't just have the bride, the groom, and the minister. You need to have witnesses. Why, why do we do that? Well, the reason is it's really a big deal. And so there's witnesses there to recognize that you made this commitment freely and openly to marry each other. And ideally, of course, you have a community of witnesses who's going to support you in this. They're going to say, we heard you do this, we know you're married, and we're going to help you be successful in your marriage, to love each other, to honor each other, and to glorify God. You know, we do this when people take membership vows in the church. We have them come forward, right? There's witnesses to this, because God says, if you confess me before men, I will confess to you, this is Jesus, before my Father in heaven. But it also allows us to pray specifically for these people and to encourage them in their faith. Normally, there have to be witnesses present in any covenant. You know, we do this when nations sign treaties. Nations do not normally sign treaties in secret meetings. Uh, That's kind of a contradiction of the idea. There are public ceremonies where the 
responsible elected officials get out there and they sit at tables and the cameras are on and they sign away and they both get copies of it. Right? So everybody knows that the treaty was openly made. In this evening's passage, Moses calls heaven and earth to serve as his witnesses for everything but he has declared to them. We're not entirely sure why he would do that, but one of the reasons might be that the pagans used to call on their gods, right? But those gods don't exist. Moses knows he's about to die, but the word that he's speaking is going to be perpetually in force until Christ's second coming. And therefore he calls something that will always be here, the heavens and earth to bear witness that this word has been clearly spoken but the people of God can never plead ignorance. Beloved, let me just say, bad news for you coming here tonight. Um, you especially can never plead ignorance. These words have been read in your hearing, and they have been preached upon. This is a vivid way of saying our obligation to trust and to obey is inescapable. God will hold us accountable. Therefore, Moses says, choose life. Some of this can sound really hard, but you have to see where it's going. This is for your good. This is for your good always. That you would know God's will and therefore choose life. That you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life. And length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Beloved, there will be tribulations and trials in your life. Jesus actually promises us that. But they can't make this complicated. The Lord of heaven and earth calls us to choose life by choosing covenant loyalty with him. We are to hold fast to the Lord, for he is our life, both now and forevermore. Amen.